right, well, would you bow your heads and let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, I pray that uh, as we bow our heads to you, the posture of our heads would be truly the posture of our hearts, that our, our souls, the essence of who we are would be bowing to Christ, <coughs> his lordship over our lives. Lord, be with us now as we look at your word, be with me, help me to speak clearly and communicate uh, to all of us what uh, what you are trying to tell us through these verses through Paul. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, if you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to turn to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and we are going to be wrapping up chapter 10 this morning. And if you remember, I gave you kind of an overview last week as well, but we are this, we're in a section of Paul's letter to the Corinthian church that is all about food sacrifice to idols, which is something that's a little disconnected to, for us nowadays, although there are many Christians who live in contexts or places where they see food sacrifice to idols every day, just walking down the street. But we don't see this as much in our Western world. Um, we talked about that a little bit last week at the end of the service, the type of idols that we see in our day. But this whole section, chapter 8 up to verse 11, verse 1, is all about this topic. And we're going to be wrapping it up this morning. And we're going to kick off our time with uh, in chapter 10, verse 23, with a Corinthian slogan, something they were saying that we actually saw before back in chapter 8 near the beginning as well. And Paul's going to bring it up again, and he's going to end with a final response to their slogan, to that, that way of thinking. So what's the slogan? Well, let's look at verse 23, and we'll jump right in. 1 Corinthians 10, 23 to 11, verse 1. Here's, here's what they were saying. I have the right to do anything. I have the right to do anything, you say. And then he responds, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, you, you say, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of <coughs> others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. Both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. 
So this morning, um, if you have the handout that I had Richard pass out, there's the bulletin and then the handout. And next week, I'm going to get really creative, and I'm going to put the handout on the back of the bulletin. So you only have one paper. But uh, this week, I didn't synchronize my printing of the bulletin and the handout, so they're separate. And this is something I'm going to start doing. Is on the back of the bulletin, I'll have the main idea, the scripture passage, the main idea, and the points. That way, if you're a note taker, you can take the notes underneath each point. Or even if you don't take notes, it'll just be a little roadmap. You can follow along where I am in the passage. So first, uh, we're going to be looking at the Corinthian selfish slogan in verse 23. The same slogan we saw at the beginning of chapter 8, which shows that Paul is now coming full circle back to where he started talking about this topic. And he's building up to his final conclusions about it. So first, the selfish slogan. Second, instead of living according to the selfish slogan, Paul is going to call the church to live for the good of others. The good of others. That's the second thing to see in these verses. Third, is that Christians are to live for the glory of God as they navigate how to deal with food offered to idols and all of life. And fourth and finally, Christians are to follow the example of Christ. So I'll say all four points again. These are the things that Paul's going to tackle here. The selfish slogan, verse 23. The good of others, that's verses 24 to 30, and verse 32 and 33. Three, the glory of God. That's verse 31. And four, the example of Christ. And if you put all this together, here's the main idea. Imitate Jesus. Be like Jesus. Live like Jesus by, how do you do it? Living for the glory of God and the good of your neighbor. Imitate Jesus by living for the glory of God and the good of your neighbor. That's really not just this section, but all of chapter 8 chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians could be summed up that way. Imitate Jesus by living for God's glory and your neighbor's good. So let's look at the selfish slogan, verse 23. I have the right to do anything, you say. And then he responds, but not everything's beneficial. I have the right to do everything, anything, but not everything is constructive or builds up. Two times Paul repeats the Corinthians' favorite slogan when it came to the issues of food and idols. I have the right to do whatever I want. I'm free. In other words, I can eat meat or not eat meat sacrificed to these idols, and nobody should be able to tell me what I can or cannot do with my body. As a popular slogan today goes, my body, my choice. And that's... Mm -hmm. Essentially what they're saying. Paul's response twice in verse 23 is that not everything you can do is beneficial, is good for you. And not everything you may have the right to do is constructive or good for building up other people. Just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should do it, right? It might not be good for you. It might not be good for other people. Here's a few examples that you might face in your life just to help you grasp what Paul's saying. For example, just because it might not be morally wrong for you to spend your money on something expensive 
It doesn't mean that it's actually a good thing for your you to spend your money on. It might not be beneficial for you, for your spiritual health, for your emotional health, for your financial health. It might, yeah, well, this isn't morally wrong to buy this. There's no verse in the Bible that says I can't just dump a load of cash on this thing and go into debt for it or whatever. Well, it might not be, but it might not actually be spiritually good for you, for your family. Um it might not be beneficial for others. Or another one for this. Yeah, another example. Just because it might not be morally wrong for you to drink a beer doesn't mean you have the right to drink a beer in front of people who might really have a struggle or a past struggling with alcohol. Just because, here's another one, just because you have the right to hold political opinions, or you can post them on Facebook or share them constantly with other people just because you have that right. There's no verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt not share your political opinions on Facebook every day, right? But you might have the freedom, but it may not be the right thing or the best way to benefit you your family, your community, to build others up, to love your neighbors. So I have the freedom to do everything must not be unhinged from remembering our call as Christians to love and care for each other and our neighbors. And of course, in this context, Paul's been talking about food sacrifice to idols. Just because we know an idol is nothing, just because you can eat this meat and it's not inherently bad for you, doesn't mean that you always should. Can does not imply should. All right. Now, it might not be good for other people. And that's the second thing Paul's going to make really explicit in verses 24 to 30. And also, if you skip past verse 31 and look at verses 32 to 33, he's going to highlight the good of others. So that's point two today. Verse 24, he says, No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. He says basically the similar thing in verse 33. You skip down and look at that. He kind of begins and ends the same way. I also try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. That's Paul's mentality. His way of looking at life. He believed the best thing that he could do for himself was actually to seek the good of his neighbor, of others. And he got that way of thinking from the Lord Jesus. And yet, this way of thinking, I'll tell you, it is so opposite of everything that we see around us paraded as wisdom today. The internet, I would say, is, is really, I mean, social media everywhere, it's drowning with advice to... Focus on yourself. To choose yourself over other people as the key to improving your overall happiness. It's very interesting to me that we, we can smell selfishness a mile away. We hate selfishness. And yet somehow, as a society, we've embraced loads of just inherently selfish slogans. 
Look out for number one. You focus on you. You just need to do you. You go with your gut. Despite what anyone else says, your gut, no matter what you ate for breakfast, is right. Go with your gut. Okay? Well, what if my gut tells me something wrong? Oh, it's your gut. Don't argue with your gut. I mean, these things, but we, we literally as a society, boy, who likes a selfish person? No one. You steer away from selfish people, and yet the whole messaging of our society, I would argue, is inherently individualistic and promotes a form of selfishness. Here's a little quote for you from a simple Google search um, about choosing yourself, focusing on yourself. It says, to choose yourself means focusing on your own happiness and navigating towards what adds positivity, oh, favorite buzzword today, positivity to your, to your life. Navigates, that means steer the ship of your life towards whatever adds positivity towards your life and away from whatever adds negativity towards your life. Ask yourself what your needs and wants are, I'm so quoting Google, and commit to fulfilling them. Make it a priority to keep yourself happy. And clear your headspace of anything that doesn't. Or we could add anyone that doesn't. That sounds so nice, right? Choose yourself. Make it your highest priority to keep yourself happy. Get that negativity out of your life. Negative people, <laughs> goodbye. Right? Negative thoughts, goodbye. Do you have a need? A need that you feel you need this? Meet it. Do you have a want? Satisfy it. Pursue your dreams, whatever they are. This is the cooling that you could drink wherever you go in the Western world. It's radical, unhinged, untethered individualism that just puts my needs, my wants, my desires, my dreams, my happiness above those even of my community. So we don't like selfishness, and yet we pump this constantly. We are a very confused society. And for some people, this seems to work, perhaps for a time, this radical self-centered life. But the tragedy is that when we do this, we will never love people truly love people who are hard to love or who actually flat out reject our love no matter how much they desperately need unconditional love. We'll never love people who are miserable and desperately need mercy and kindness in their life. We will cut that negativity out of our lives. Goodbye! And we'll never truly critique when if, we, if we say... You must meet whatever, if you feel you have a need, you must meet that need. We'll never actually critique our needs and our wants with a skeptical eye, inviting the wisdom of other people. We'll never doubt that maybe what we really want deep down in our gut is not actually best for us. Or best for our family, or our friends, or our community, or our world. What we're told is that if we feel like it makes us happier, then it's the right thing to do, as long as it doesn't outright hurt anyone. 
Be true to yourself. It's all so nice and sounds good. Accept yourself, love yourself, please yourself, choose yourself. Until, how about the day comes when you actually are at the end of your life and you look back and you take a really honest look at yourself? Like in a moment of clarity? And you realize that there's whole large swaths of yourself that you wouldn't choose. You've done things you hate and you can't erase. What does this choose-yourself mentality have to say to somebody who's looking at the end of their life and they're looking back and they feel like they've actually torpedoed their whole life? What do they say? Well, forgive yourself. Well, what if it's other people that you hurt? What then? Just accept yourself? How can I do that? When everything tells me I should reject myself and my past self and even my present self for being such a terrible person. What if you are the negative person? What do you, what do, you do at the end of your life? You can't go back and erase stuff. That's where the gospel of Jesus is so much better than the gospel of self-acceptance. The good news of the gospel promises us a love and forgiveness and acceptance that comes from outside of ourselves and that's based on the love and acceptance and the freedom of God, our creator, and his work in forgiving us. The gospel promises me that through Jesus, a sinner like myself and like us all can truly experience the love and acceptance of a father who won't reject me because I've been forgiven through Jesus and his sacrifice. That is the unshakable foundation of Christian positivity. And it can be received by anyone through faith in Christ. So, anyhow, that was a bit of a tangent, but it's connected. Seek the good of others. Back to the text at hand. Not your own good in the scenario of food sacrifice to idols. That's Paul's main point here. Verses 25 to 30 now, he's going to give two examples and a brief little qualification sandwiched in there of some scenarios where this kind of mentality, this selfish mentality about food that you may or may not eat gets worked out in daily life. Or I should say, this other sense of mentality. He's going to work this out. What, what does this look like in, in his context? So here's his first scenario. Verses 25 to 26. He, remember, he, this is the conclusion. This is his wrap-up of everything he's been saying in chapters 8, 9, and 10. He says, okay, when all is said and done, here's what you do. Verse 25. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. And here's his reason. For God owns everything. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Psalm 24, verse 1. He quotes the Bible. He says, God owns everything and everything in it. This reaches all the way back to what he said in chapters 8 about how idols aren't real and how God made the world. There's nothing inherently wrong with meat that was sacrificed 
to an item. If you go to the meat market, you don't need to uh, say, hey, how was the source? Was the source locally? You know, like, <laughs> like locally as in the temple right down the street? No. He said, buy, was this fair trade? <laughs> you know, no, he says, buy it without reservations about where it had been. No, because the earth, the earth is the Lord's. The food is the Lord's. It hasn't been somehow contaminated by the ceremonies that it underwent on the way to the market. Christians can shop with clean consciences, knowing that at the end of the day, all food is God's food. The earth is God's. So give thanks and eat that. That's his first scenario. So when you go shop, shop with clean conscience. Because Christians are asking this question. And we ask the same question about things today, but we don't have time to tease out all those implications. Um, the next scenario he brings up, Christians might face, verse 27. How about if a lost person, somebody who doesn't follow Jesus, has you over for dinner and offers you meat? And you have no idea where that's been. <laughs> okay? <laughs> they take it out of their pantry, but you know it didn't come from the pantry. Like, what? What, what do you do? Well, he says, if any unbeliever invites you over and you want to go, he says, eat everything that's set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. So, these dinner invitations in the ancient world were really common. And so he says, if you go there and somebody sets in front of you a big platter of meat and you're not at a Christian's house, um, just like in the marketplace, don't, don't worry about where... It came from. It ultimately belongs to the Lord. Your conscience, your internal sense of right or wrong, it, it doesn't have to struggle where the meat had been before it hit your plate. You're free to eat it. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to jump past verse 28 and the very beginning of verse 29. Because what Paul is going to do there is, is introduce a brief exception clause. But his argument actually continues, picks up in verse 29. So he's going to, it's kind of like verse 28 and the very beginning of verse 29 is like stuck in there, almost unnaturally. Um, but it's because he's qualifying something. So we're going to just jump past that and we'll, we'll spin around and go back to it. Okay? Verse 29 and 30, he says two questions. Um... Why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? And verse 30, if I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something for which I gave thanks? So, so what, what he's doing here is he's saying, imagine back in chapter 8, I was talking to you about these Christians who have hang-ups about meat sacrificed to idols. Their consciences feel like, God, don't do it. Don't do it. And in chapter 8, what he said is, don't say, eat up, it's okay, eat up, God, God forgives you, whatever, you know, don't worry about it. He, he said, no, because you might actually prove to be a highway for them back onto their previous path, living for idols. It, going against conscience isn't wise. So, so here he's saying, now you're at an unbeliever's house, there's no other Christians around, and you're, you're, you're wondering, um, man, I wonder what. I wonder what Brother Bob would think about me eating this meat. If he was here, 
I wonder, I wonder what his conscience would be doing. And Paul says in verse 29 and verse 30, your freedom shouldn't be judged by another person's conscience. He says, why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? In verse 30, if I partake with thanksgiving, so I'm sitting there and I just say, thank you, Lord. I have no idea where this has been, but this is, this is your, you made this sheep and it doesn't matter. Um, why is my freedom, he says, if I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized of something for which I give thanks to God. So he's saying you, you shouldn't worry about what other Christians who aren't there might be thinking when you're shopping in the meat market and you're not tracking down all oh, where this food came from or you're, you're at an unbeliever's house. Don't, don't worry about the consciences of others in those settings. He's already dealt in chapter 8 about when you might want to worry about the consciences of other Christians. Okay, so you're not going to buy meat in the meat market and then invite another Christian over and say, oh yeah, by the way, this was sacrificed to idols and you should eat it. And, and they're like, no, I don't feel like I should. I'm worried about this. He's, this is what Paul Paul's saying. When you're by yourself at an unbeliever's house, don't, um, don't worry about what their consciences might be you know, judging you for. However, there is a scenario at an unbeliever's house where you might not want to eat, okay? Or you shouldn't eat the meat. So you go to an unbeliever's house, and you're at this lost person's house, and now let's back up into verse 28 and look at this little exception. He says, but if someone says to you at, the, at this, you're, you're at a party at your lost friend's house, and somebody walks up to you with a burger in their hand and they say, hey, by the way, this has been sacrificed to idols. Then don't eat it. Both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience, verse 29, I am referring to the other person's conscience, the lost person, there, not yours. What is going on here? What, what's your logic, Paul? What's your point? Well, what's going on is this lost person, this unbeliever, comes up to you, a Christian, and he makes it a point to tell you that this food has been offered to idols. He's like, hey, by the way, Christian, I know you're a Christian, and this is idol food you're eating. You know, the cheeseburger's halfway to your mouth. <laughs> and right? And he's like, by the way, we offer that to idols. What are you, you going to do about that? And what Paul is saying is put it down. And it's not because of your conscience or your sense of right and wrong. And it's not because of something that's inherently wrong with that because you just gave thanks for it. You said, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. I'm going to eat this. And you get ready and thank you, Lord, for this. And as you're about to eat it, your last friend goes up, hey, we, we offered that to Zeus last night. Um, and you're, you're participating in, in, in that. And he says, well, for the sake of their conscience, you should not eat it. You don't want to give an impression to this lost person that Jesus is okay with idolatry and that you're okay with idolatry as well. Especially because they're not asking you for a theology lesson in the moment. It seems like this, this is kind of a test. Well, what's the Christian going to do? All right? Well, sit down, everyone, at this party, and let me tell you about idols. 
that's not the that's not the context for that. All right. So in that moment, say, well, I don't want to have anything to do with idolatry. I'm a Christian. I worship Jesus. I'm gonna I'm gonna put this down for their sake because this lost person who doesn't worship Jesus is having the sense that you as a Christian might have a problem with this. And even though you theologically know that it's best that, that, that it's okay for their sake, put it down so that they know Jesus doesn't have anything to do with idols. You want to keep things simple for them and clear. All right. And the reason for it is because he wants them to be saved. See that? Verse 32. Paul's not, he's resolved not to be a stumbling block to anyone. He doesn't want his actions to get in the way of anyone following Jesus. He doesn't want to be at a party where somebody explicitly says, yeah, we're eating idol food, and they might think, well, maybe Jesus is okay with idols. I don't need to worship Jesus. I'll just tack him on to my, he's just another God that you could worship. And Paul says, we, don't, we want to steer away from that. For the unbeliever's sake, put it down. And everything, though, what Paul does is governed by this overarching principle. He does all that he does, and he wants the Corinthians to do all that they do for the for the glory and honor of God. That's point three in verse 31. This is a famous verse. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Oftentimes, you may have heard this verse. Lift it out of context a little bit as a life verse for Christians. And that's, it, there's good reason for that. Because over all of our daily Decisions as Christians that we need to make, whether we are in the meat market or whether we're in the home of a lost person or whether we're in the presence of another Christian who's just left their past of idolatry and they're still struggling with what's right and what's wrong. Everything we do, even down to the very issues of what we drink and what we eat and what we wear, we were made to bring glory to God what we were made for as humans. The purpose of your life sitting here today, the purpose of your existence as a human is the glory of God. Now glory is a big religious sounding <coughs> word. What does it mean? What does it mean to live for God's glory and to do everything, even eating and drinking, for the glory of God? <coughs> the glory of God, God's glory, is the weight of who he is as the self-existent creator of all that exists. God's glory is his worth as the source of life and goodness and beauty. The heavenly beings around the throne sing, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. That's like saying hot, hot, hot is the sun, and the whole earth is filled with its warmth, its light, its life-giving power. 
God created the sun to be a ball of fire with radiant beams giving life to the earth so that we would understand what he, as, his, as the holy God, is like filling the earth with his glory. The psalmist in Psalm 19 says, The heavens are telling the glory of God. The skies declare his handiwork. What this means is that all around us, creation is showing off, displaying the worth and the value of the creator and of his honor, his glory. The, the power of the glory of God's power, the weight of God's power, the worth of his power is on display in a thunderstorm, a volcano, a hurricane, or the way that the heavenly bodies move and rotate on their axes as they orbit. God's love of beauty is on display in a majestic sunrise or a sunset flooding the sky with pink, or a tiny flower, or a radiant bride. God's wisdom is on display in all the mathematical intricacies of physics and advanced mathematics of which I know nothing. God's care and his compassion are on display in the abundance of food and water on this planet and none other. All of this is his glory, the worth and value of who he is as it's communicated to us on display for us throughout his world. The glory of God is the worth of God on display, the weight of who he is that we can feel, taste, touch, experience. It's his honor on display. That's another word for glory that we can use. They're often used simultaneously or interchangeably in the Bible. Glory and honor. Glory and honor. They're two words used together that kind of mutually help each other understand what they're getting at. A king's honor is his respected position. It is the glory and honor of a king to rule. So a king has glory and honor. Just like the Lord does. The Lord is glorious and honorable in all that he has ever done. And in all he will ever do. He is talked about in the Bible as the glorious one. Our glory and our honor as humans, the reason that we were made was to partner with God, our creator, in taking care of his world and in living in this world in ways that reflect his worth. And the way that he would do things. Okay? So this is an illustration. I've used this before. Um, it's an illustration of someone, uh, of driving someone else's car. Imagine someone really important. Someone with a glorious position as a human, with great honor, gives you the keys to their car. And asks if you would like to have the honor, the glory, of driving it for a day. You get to participate in the glory that they have. They have the glory, the honor of this prestigious position, this prestigious car, this beautiful car, and you get to share in the glory. Even though it's not coming from you, you get to 
taste it. You get to experience it as you drive their glory, part of their glory, part of their, what it is, you know, their position, their respectable position is that they get to have this awesome car and you get to participate in it, right? You get that idea? You know, wow, what an honor to drive this car. And imagine you hop in this car and you drive crazy and reckless in it all day long. You end up leaving it embedded in a tree. Now, everyone who saw you driving it crazy assumed it was your important and respectable friend driving like crazy. You drove his honor through the mud. Okay? Whoa, what got into him? You're, you're, you took over his car and turned his glory and his honor against him. You dragged his respectable name through the mud and you trashed his car. This is a little bit, a little bit, like what Adam and Eve did with creation. Okay? God creates this glorious realm that he rules over. He creates a human partner Man and wife, Adam and Eve, king and queen, to rule over the works of his hands in a way that brings him honor. Hands on the keys, says, here you drive, and Satan, a spiritual being in rebellion against God, climbs in the back seat, right? And here's the illustration, says, I've got an idea. Let's, let's drive my way, okay? Let's not listen to God. Let's do something dishonorable. Let's drive. Okay, and so what Adam and Adam does is he steers creation in a direction of rebellion against the Creator and ends up getting creation cut off from the tree of life, plunging creation into death. Adam brought dishonor to the human race. According to the Bible, this is what's wrong with the world that we are living in. Humans are not born with an innate desire to live for the honor of their creator. Instead, we live for our own honor at the cost of other people. We put ourselves first, or we live life for the honor of other things in creation, treating created things as if they are more honorable and worthy of glory and praise than God himself. That is actually the essence of idolatry. Treating created things, things that we enjoy, as if they themselves are the source of life and joy and goodness. But for humans to instead glorify and honor God, what we were saved for, means we seek to live our lives in ways that show our respect for him, our love for him, and our devotion to everything that he stands for. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God, for his honor. So, how do you do that? Well, when you eat and drink with thanksgiving to God, you honor God as the giver of good gifts. This is one reason that we as Christians, we encourage the habit of giving thanks to God at a meal. It honors God as the giver. And enjoying the food honors him as well because he made food to be enjoyed. When you taste something delicious and you are thrilled with it, 
you are tasting of the glory of God. Okay? When the psalmist says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, he uses the language of taste buds because he knows God gave you taste buds to taste tasty food so that you would have language and ability to understand a little bit of what he is like. His goodness is a goodness that's so good you can taste it. You can talk about it like it's food. You don't have to choose between enjoying a delicious meal this afternoon and glorifying God. Because when you go into it with thanksgiving to God, He gets the glory and the honor for your enjoyment. You don't have to choose between enjoying a wonderful relationship with someone and enjoying God. Because the deeper you go in love for someone else, with gratitude to God as the giver, God gets the glory for your sharing in what he has made. If you give someone a gift, a precious gift, and they don't use it, you don't glorify the giver, right? If somebody, if somebody gave me um, a brand new lawnmower, I don't need a lawnmower, but I'm saying if somebody gave me a brand new lawnmower, how do I honor them as the giver? I use it. If I put the lawnmower in the shed and never touched it, because I'm trying to somehow respect them, you know, whoa, this came from them. No, that's you, you. The giver gets the glory when the gift is enjoyed. So, this earth is full of the glory of God, His worth on display as it's communicated to us in the grass and the trees and the flowers and the beauty of this creation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory and His glory alone, and we get to taste it, share it, enjoy it. That's what Paul is saying. And so, that whether you eat, or drink, or whatever you do in this world, whatever you use in this world, whatever you touch in this world, whatever you taste in this world, do it, O oh Christian, in a way that puts points to the giver in gratitude and thanksgiving to him, so that God would get the glory. That's what we were made for. When we as humans show kindness to those who hurt us and show love that we do not, that they don't deserve. Like somebody really hurts you. And instead of saying, well, I just need to focus on me, so get out of my life. We actually show them love that they don't deserve and mercy and kindness. And we release them from their sins against us through forgiveness. Instead of trying to make them pay us back or hurt them for what we do, it glorifies God and honors God as the giver of kindnesses that no one deserves. Like, God is sending rain right now to water the crops in Russia. He causes his sun to shine on the evil and the good. Be like your father in heaven, says Jesus. Show kindness. There is a great and mighty strength that comes from God himself when we show kindness in the face of great evil. It is far easier to slug the other person back than it is to show mighty kindness and 
gentleness and goodness and to experience in that the glory of God. God's glory is to show kindness. And ultimately, Jesus, our Savior, he comes and puts everything that is glorious and honorable and good about God on display for the world to see. He upholds God's truth and God's justice when he comes. God's love and God's patience is on full display in Jesus. God's power and God's peaceful presence is on display. God's strength and his gentleness is on display in the person of Jesus. Mighty strength to raise the dead and powerful weakness to let a child on your lap in gentleness. God's faithfulness to keep his word is on display in Jesus. All of the promises of God are yes and find their fulfillment in Christ. God's love for beauty and God's desire to heal what is broken is on display in Jesus. God's strength and his tenderness, his boldness and his courage, his gentleness and calming presence, his majesty, his glory, his might, everything beautiful and good and glorious and honorable and right and true about God that humans were created to reflect and enjoy is fulfilled in our Savior Jesus Christ. He is the perfect image of God, the last Adam, who is going to rule the world one day with the honor and the glory that Adam didn't do. Jesus is the last Adam. If you want to honor God as you were created to do, then you must honor Christ and follow Christ. There is no one else. And this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. It's the fourth point this morning, the example of Christ. Look at, if you would, at this verse. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. It says, follow me as I follow Jesus. These words help us understand the goal. What is the goal of a Christian leader? Or of a Christian disciple. It's not simply to be a learner or a follower of any human leader. But ultimately we are all here to learn together how to follow Jesus. And as Paul follows Jesus, those who follow him are ultimately going to be following Jesus. And it's Jesus himself who is that perfect example that we are called to follow. And what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 is he's calling the Corinthians to follow Jesus and live like Jesus and act like Jesus when it comes to eating food sacrificed to idols. He wants the Corinthians to avoid any activities that might push people away from Jesus and toward idols if they're lost. He wants the Corinthians to enjoy everything in the world that Jesus has created. And don't call something bad that God has declared good, like food. But he doesn't want Christians to interact with other Christians in ways that might push them away from Jesus. So everything is all about Jesus and glorifying Jesus. And it looks different in different situations. That's why Paul spilled so much ink about this. 
So I'll conclude, I'll say the main point again. Imitate Jesus by living for the glory of God and the good of your neighbor. But now, by way of specific application, I want you to see how putting the needs of others first honors God and is actually best for us in the end as we learn to follow Jesus. The human life that seeks its own good as its highest goal, like if you seek your own good in life, me first, me before all others, if you do that, you will end up simply using other people, avoiding other people, hurting other people. In the end, seeking your own good first ends up pushing all other life away from you. If you become a vortex, sucking life from others, give me life, give me life, because I'm first, everyone will want to avoid the vortex, right? We all do this. Every single one of us struggle with wanting to live life for ourselves. That's the essence of sin, is to be the vortex. The black hole. And the more we center our hopes and dreams and thoughts and purposes on ourselves, the more shriveled and dead and lifeless we will become as humans. Because self is always coming closer to death. So if you live to bring life to yourself, guess what? You're going to die. You're doomed from the beginning. That's the point. But if instead we put the needs of others above our own, it seems counterintuitive. And yet what it does is it casts us upon the living Lord who again and again will meet our needs. So picture here a, self, a situation that might arise in your life where you feel like you really need to rest. And sometimes maybe you do, so that you can have strength to love. But in this situation, let's say you, you also know a friend really needs help. Help that you can give. You're very well able to give. When you choose to put your friend's needs above what you feel in that moment, cast, you're, what you're doing is you're Casting yourself upon God in trust to give you strength that you feel like you don't have. And when God does that, when he chooses to meet you in that moment and give you the strength you didn't feel like you had so that you could meet someone else's needs through, that he can meet someone's needs through you, it honors God as the giver of strength. When you in your weakness choose to love by relying on his strength, it puts his power on display. And it gives us great joy as we participate in the privilege of imitating him and sharing his work on earth. When we give more of ourselves away, the gift we receive is more of God himself, more of his strength, more of his spirit, his wisdom, his love. Our amazing example of this type of radical love is Jesus Christ. Jesus gave his whole self away on the cross. He poured out his whole life for the whole of humanity. 
At the age of 33, in the prime of his life, Jesus gave his life for us. And in death, his empty, lifeless body that he had poured out for others was perfectly primed to be resurrected by the very power that made the universe. He spent and he was raised to life. The living God meets death with resurrection life. Not just every day when you die in the little things and God gives life, but at the end of the day, when you're looking back at a life spent for God and for others, God raises the dead. In the daily grind of living life this side of the grave, the more we give, the more we open ourselves up to receive the life and strength and love of God at work in us and through us. This goes against my natural bent as a human being. It goes against all our natural bends. It is natural for me and for us to become increasingly consumed with ourselves and our wants and our needs and our thoughts and our opinions and what are other people saying about me, me, me. And in our modern age, we are cheered on all around us. Choose yourself. Be yourself. Go with your gut. Follow your dreams. Don't let anyone else define who you are. You be you. Not even your creator. Like the Corinthians will say, I have the right to do anything. But we were not made for ourselves. We were made for God. Our creator made us for a purpose. The purpose we were made for was to partner with him to fill this earth with his honor and his praise and enjoy his creation in a way that brings glory to him. We were made to extend his love and care and wisdom outwards to the end of the earth. We were not made for mirrors. We were made to be reflectors of God's glory. God is the great giver of life and strength and every blessing and kindness that we could ever imagine. He is a never-drying-up fountain of life, and he calls us to pour ourselves out for the good of others so that we are always in the position where we are running back to him because he alone is the source of life. Let's pray. Lord, this word is a word for me as it is for all of us. I ask that you would make us like your son. That we would realize this is what Jesus meant when he said he who would like to save his life must lose it. That we would find resurrection in laying our lives down for each other and for other people. Lord, I pray that you would just create this more in my life. Forgive me for my selfishness. Forgive me for being consumed with my own goals and aspirations and dreams and hopes. Forgive me for enjoying the gifts of creation as an end in themselves and not as springboards to worship you. And I pray, Father, that you would help us today as we go out 
on Mother's Day to glorify you in the fact that everything good and beautiful about mothers is a reflection of your goodness as well. Your kindness, your tenderness, your compassion, your care, your quiet strength. Lord, you created both mothers and fathers to give us a glimpse of what you are like in your love. And I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to run to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.